Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast. I'm Bob St. Pierre coming at you from the most beautiful John Deere dealership view in the entire country. Uh, We're at the Midwest Machinery Company, a John Deere dealer in Glenwood, Minnesota, overlooking beautiful Lake Minnewaska. And I've heard there's a relatively good smallmouth fishery below us. True story. JP? True story. Yeah. My daughter caught a couple uh, largemouth bass off the dock uh, when we were planting this spring. Uh, yeah. Largemouth? Yeah, yeah largemouth. Oh, for some reason, I thought there was smallies in Alaska. I think there's smallies, but I think it's more known oh. for largemouth here. I, little, I couldn't tell you. There's <laughs> a little bit of everything. <laughs> there's a lot of walleye. I know that. I'm a pheasant or not a fisher, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a perfect introduction. I'm a farmer. Um, that the voice you hear is Zach Johnson, and the theme for this particular episode of On the Wing podcast is farmers, hunters, and finding common ground together. Um, going around the horn, I'm going to introduce our participants. Riding co-host uh, to my left is Tanner Bruce. Putting the pressure on me, Bob. I, I am, I, I, but I know you can handle it because you are the Ag and Conservation Program Manager for Pheasants Forever and for Quail Forever, based uh, near Marshall, Minnesota. Uh, Tanner, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Bob. I appreciate it. Uh, Ag and Conservation Program Manager, what does that mean? I'm still trying to figure that out myself. (laughs) Uh, Just kidding. So with that that job title, uh, my main role is to supervise our, our great staff that we have in Minnesota. So we've got 18 farm bill biologists that work directly with uh, farmers and, and landowners to enroll voluntary conservation programs, along with our precision ag and conservation specialists working on uh, precision ag data and incorporating conservation and prof- profitability uh, with farmers directly. And as I mentioned, you live near Marshall, which most Minnesota bird hunters know is kind of the pheasant capital of There's the no state. There's no birds there. Do not go there. <laughs> well, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. Give us a, um, the early, as we're recording this, we're, um, we're in late July. Um, what, what's, the, what's your roadside brood counts looking like in Marshall area right now? So far, three broods okay. is what I've witnessed. Uh, we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but it's been really, really, really wet. Yeah. Uh, not good for farming definitely not good for pheasants either so it's kind of a crapshoot we'll see what happens as as time progresses see how much re-nesting there is uh, but I'm sure we'll definitely see an impact there and also joining us on this particular episode you may know him as Minnesota the Minnesota millennial farmer from the. YouTube the, the yeah like the Ohio State right big deal <laughs> yeah right I have many leather bone books <laughs> Uh, you may know him uh, from his podcast, uh, Fieldwork, which uh, airs uh, or is put together with Minnesota Public Radio. Yeah. Um, or you may know him simply as Zach Johnson. Yeah. Um, Welcome to On the Wing, Zach. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm I'm excited to see where this goes. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to give Tanner some crap too along the way. Absolutely. I, I, I was through Marshall yesterday. He said uh, there's no pheasants there. Nope. As he said, I was through there yesterday. There's also not a lot of corn there right now. No, there's no corn. Mm. Those guys have had a tough go of it. Very tough. We, we got uh, some friends that farm in Milroy, real close to there, and it, it's just been terrible for them this spring. And y- you farm 
Well, we're, like I said, we're in Glenwood. You're about 20 miles to the northwest from here. Is that about yeah, right? Yeah, about 10. 10. About okay. 10 miles to the northwest. Yeah, pretty close. So this is this is our dealership. This is where we do the, the majority of our, our work through. And, you know, you st- our dealership, John Deere, I you know, I have to mention John Deere obviously is the the official Habitat, habitat Tractor uh, national partner of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. So shout out to John Deere for, for being a, a huge supporter of our conservation mission and uh, to the local guys here for letting us record the podcast, which you're a John Deere guy. You know, everything that I've seen on Millennial Farmer on the YouTube channel is all John Deere tractors. Pretty loaded full of green tractors, yeah. yep. Millennial Farmer, you've got 300,000 followers yep. on YouTube. I yeah, think you most of them right are, are robots. <laughs> <laughs> are they Russian? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. There's got to be some collusion in there somewhere because I don't know where they all come from. How do you explain 300,000 followers? I, I, everybody that asks me that, I ask them to try and explain it to me because I'm not really sure when I started the whole deal. It was just kind of a, and it still is, it's just kind of a fun hobby that I started just to try to relate to people about what we do on our farms, why we do it. You know, here's who I am. Here's who my family is. Here's what we do day to day. This is how we handle this. Um, there's a lot of people out there who are so removed from the farms. Mm-hmm. And like we were talking earlier, people have a real interest now in where their food comes from. And I think when you add together that massive disconnect that has happened over the last 30, 40 years, and the fact that people are really curious about what's going on out here and where the food comes from, you put those two together and there's enough people out there that are actually that are genuinely interested in seeing where some of that comes from. And, you know, I'm growing corn and soybeans in the Midwest. Um, I'm not growing organic vegetables. I don't have uh, 15 different crops that I'm doing. But to just see the process like that of, of something, where something comes from, because I'm growing ingredients, right, corn and soybeans. I'm growing oils and, and livestock feed and, and ethanol, so it's a little bit different than seeing where your, your vegetables in the, at the produce aisle come mm-hmm. from. But just to be able to see some form of agriculture and what goes on when people drive by on the highways and they see these big machines out in the big fields, to be able to get an inside view of that to a lot of people is, is pretty rare. That's difficult to find. I take it for granted, and a lot of my friends do as well because that's what we grew up with. But uh, people are disconnected from it, and, yeah. and some people want to know what's really going on. And you do a really nice job uh, it, not only on YouTube explaining that, uh, you know, this is trying to, you know, show what's behind the curtain from farming, but then in field work, the podcast that you're a part of, I think you take that even to the next level. You know, your approach is all about, you know, sustainability and talking about doing the right thing for soil, for water. Yeah. And what we're going to talk about a lot today is habitat. Yeah. But explain how field work came to be. So um, I was approached from uh, some of the producers at Minnesota Public Radio about this idea. Um, they've got an initiative that, that is called the Water Main. Um, they'd be a lot better to talk on it than, sure. I, than I will. I can't get into too much detail on that. But um, basically the idea behind it is w- what are the efforts that we can take to benefit water quality and, and soil health within the state of Minnesota and really and, and kind of look beyond that too, but more as a, a regional initiative to start with, right? Mm-hmm. So let's look at this from, from where we are now and what we can do through conversation to maybe make some changes. And so they approached me and, um, and my co-host on that, Mitchell Hora. He's a farmer down in southeast Iowa. He's a, a soil health consultant. He's got a company that that's what they do down there. So his farm and my farm are very different. He has a lot of experience with no-till, strip-till, cover crops, those sorts of things. Uh, whereas where I farm up here, 
I mean, I would guess the percentage of no-till in, in my county, or at least in my township, is, is 1%, maybe. Hmm. I mean, no, nobody practices that. And when I've seen it try to be implemented in the past, it, for the most part, what I've seen is, is disasters. At the same time, you know, I, we're farmers, so we have a huge, massive responsibility to take care of our natural resources. And I believe that in my head that if we could figure out how to get back to uh, you know, less tillage and, and maybe getting cover crops implemented. If we could figure out a way to do that, I do believe really ultimately that that would be better for the soil and for the water, but that doesn't come without some real complications, hmm. you know, whether it be labor or machinery or time or, or the cost of, of implementing this stuff. It's not an easy thing to just say, I'm going to, I'm going to quit tilling my fields. You know, I'm just, I'm not going to pull any tillage through there this fall and next year we'll just plant through it, right? It, it doesn't work that way. And pay the bills. Yeah, and pay the, and pay the bills because yeah. we are set up to be super efficient in what we do. We are set up to operate this way and we're very efficient at it. And all of a sudden you throw a wrench in there and try to change something. It's not as simple as, as a lot of people would like to think. Yep. And the, the voice you're just starting to hear, <laughs> JP... Jan Payne um, is the embodiment of this podcast, in my oh. opinion. You like that? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. Responsibility yeah. now, JP. <laughs> right. And, and, and the reason I say that is, on on one hand, JP is a farmer, farms over 2,000 acres right here in Pope County, Minnesota. Actually, I'm in Chippewa Chippewa County. County yeah. Yep. And you, on the other hand, you're also a longtime Chippewa County Pheasants Forever volunteer. You've gone to Washington, D.C. as part of our legislative action fund and and through our government affairs team. Um, You've talked habitat conservation at the highest levels of USDA and uh, our U.S. senators, our our congressmen and women. Um, So you have, again, you're the embodiment of this conversation. (laughs) Habitat, hunter, and a farmer all together. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for being a volunteer. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for thinking of me. Um, yeah. t- tell us a little bit about your operation and, and why you've been a longtime volunteer of Pheasants Forever. Yeah, so um, sixth generation on my farm. Uh, my grandfather really enjoyed pheasant hunting and talked about the days of, of what we still refer to as the glory days. Uh, and I wasn't alive then, but Federal Land Bank. That was really the, the original conservation program, right? It was a lot of grass still here on the on the native prairies in western Minnesota. Uh, as I grew up through the 70s and the 80s, we became a, quite a commercial farm. We got involved with the uh, sugar beet business as well that happens uh, in the cooperative of Renneville. And, and uh, in the 80s, we started to see a, a pretty big slowdown. And it was tough economic times for farming. And my dad recognized, I think, a couple of things. Uh, it was time to do be more responsible to the land, and we want we were finding we didn't have places to hunt deer. We weren't seeing pheasants. Uh, Hungarian partridges were disappearing off the landscape. Um, there was a rule that you know we have a lot of open drainage ditches in our part of the world, and uh, there was a rule that we should have 16 feet of grass along that. And we all know that maybe quote unquote I don't know controversy that may have stirred up in the governors. Uh, pheasant uh, uh, meeting summit. summit that we had I in Marshall. Heard anything about that? Yeah, day. right. That really stirred up a hornet's nest, right? Uh, that was in existence, and and so we took a little preemptive strike in the '80s. And I was uh, just in high school at that time. We put all of ours into 60-foot buffer strips, and those 60, 60. So we took beyond the 16 and went to the 60 and put them in, enrolled them in, 
at that time, what Pheasants Forever was really doing was really lobbying for those conservation programs that were new, and a lot of farmers were taking advantage of them as part of their bottom line. Uh, those ditch banks don't typically are not super productive. They're clay soil banks. Uh, there's erosion problems there. So we put them in, and we took advantage of a bit of a program. So they take out the 16 feet or the rod that's supposed to be there for, for soil condition and water and filtering, and then we get a little payment for the rest, mm -hmm. and we add it all into the farm, and and uh, all of a sudden pheasants were starting to be pretty plentiful on the farm, and it was a, a return to to pheasant hunting for for all of us. So and deer, lots of deer come out of it. Uh, it may probably aren't the greatest overwintering uh, habitats, but it was it was kind of where we got our start, and mm -hmm. um, then. Uh, CREP became available, and I think as... And so for listeners that might not know, CREP, yeah. Conservation Reserve Enhancement Program, targeting water quality, uh, but also has wildlife habitat benefits. Yeah, so we had an absolute perfect uh, farm, a whole quarter section, so it's 160 acres. In the middle of that was a existing 27-acre uh, slough that connected into the Shakopee Creek drainage or Buffalo Lake, is mm -hmm. what was referred to in our local area. Uh, not a super productive in a high tax base, and my dad needed to start doing some uh, estate planning, enrolled it in CREP. Uh, this is probably 20 years ago. Hmm. And uh, I remember the last bean crop we took off of, soybeans, probably the best crop we ever took off of it, uh, ironically, but then uh, we seeded into habitat, and that's just been my little Valhalla while I'm still here hmm. with us all. It's a great place to take the dogs to run, uh, deer hunt there. I have food plots there. Yeah, I, it's a, And it's kind of all my little island of heaven. Yeah. So you really take to, into consideration to heart kind of your farming, your hunting heritage, yeah. where you came from, Yep. and really get to enjoy both. Yeah, and I, I'm plus maybe a little unique in that is that I, I do love to hunt, and not every farmer is that, so that leads me down this well i know that habitat creates birds i know the habitat's putting deer out there mm -hmm. uh and the the benefit the upswing is especially in you know the well, i think what we're seeing today is people are more worried about water quality uh, and, and what what's happening with soils especially as we like zach addresses as we become more and more disconnected and we have more people living in a big city and they see water quality hey, hey that's our water too mm -hmm. um who's being responsible for that so we have a responsibility to that and in, in essence i think every farmer is a conserver a, a, cons, a conservationist they may be not labeled that way but we really want to do what's best for the land because if we don't take care of the land then we, we don't have a product to bring to market sure and, and inputs are expensive so we're not out there trying to throw every ounce of fertilizer on it it's it's cost prohibitive and it doesn't make any sense and it's and unduly it's bad for the environment yep. so i think truly if they're not a person who's embracing maybe creating habitat they're really concerned about what's happening with their soils healthy are the soils healthy and is there a, is there we're great uh, adopters of technology uh, i mean in the 80s we started to collect data through the uh, th John Deere specifically in our operation through their Green Star programs and, and GP also we had GPSs and, and we could site specific farm and, and so we've been doing that now from the 80s and the the technology is far more advanced today than it was when we began doing this in, in the early 80s 
and we're still trying to learn how do we site specifically farm uh, your program that has come on board is i think fantastic opportunity because we're really starting to really drill down on what's profitable yeah that's a great segue to okay so when you say your program you're talking about precision your precision a program that through pheasants forever so yep. uh, tanner why don't you tell us what that means you know from a pheasants forever perspective what do we mean when we say precision ag because i bet you if i asked you know 10 customers down on the john deere floor i probably get nine and a half different answers yeah there's many different variables many different platforms uh, many different uses for precision agriculture uh, so when we look at kind of pf's vision of what precision agriculture is uh, it first starts with profitability and return on investment to the grower themselves obviously as that can attest to and jp uh, farming is a business, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's pretty hard, absolutely. To, pretty hard to farm if you can't make money. That's right? correct. It's pretty yep. hard to put conservation on the ground if you can't make money. Yep. Um, it all kind of goes hand in hand. Uh, so we basically then start with farmer objectives. You know, if I was talking to Zach, you know, what are your interests? What, what's the surrounding landscape? You know, is there livestock in the area? Um, just trying to dive in a little bit to different uses that we could do uh, through precision agriculture and the identification of different uh profitable acres or unprofitable acres on the farm. Uh, another key point would be that, you know, we really want to work with all the trusted advisors within that operation. Uh, some things can be fixed agronomically. Um, work with a consultant, you know, such as a, a central crop consulting or somebody else. So we're really diving into the whole whole farm, whole field um, to kind of get to where, where we're going. Uh, we take in the as applied, as planted data, uh, compare that with the yield data. So it gives you a cross, uh, cost structure. Um, so you can go in subfield and look at what's your profitability per acre. So we're not just looking at it from a field level. We're looking at a subfield acre by acre level. Um, and then where kind of Pheasants Forever comes into play is looking at the trouble spots, um, revenue negative areas, and what can we do with conservation to increase profits for the farmer that's also going to provide the natural resource benefit and, and potential habitat. So. So, so you guys, what, what's your reaction to using precision ag with the, hey, we're fundamentally, we think habitat or conservation will spill out the back end as an option for farmers on some pieces of property. Do you buy that um, theory from our perspective? Yeah, I think I do. Um, in every operation we talked about earlier is, is its own unique venue and so uh, so it has its own cost structure and its own profitability structure but i think what really tweaks your interest is we've looked at yield maps and so oh, this is an area where we have yield and this is where we have poor yield and then all of a sudden you start to dial in inputs and you start to say we have profitability zones we're we're making a few dollars here and we're not here can we do something agronomically to change that to increase profit there there's maybe only so much and if it isn't is there another program? So maybe conservation is a program. Um, maybe it's not. Mm -hmm. But you're really trying, I think, always to return in, a, in an environment, well, in all of our lives, in farming, that environment is very, very narrow margins. And so if we can do something to help that margin, then it's a win for everybody. And, again, it's, it's all voluntary. So it could be anything from a state program, federal program. Um, you could just do it on your own as well. Yeah, or you could do it on your own because it might it may make enough sense to say, well, I'm buying seed, I'm buying fertilizer, I'm using fuel, I'm, I'm using up resources, and I'm 
I'm going backward. And if I just take that zone out, let's say, and it becomes some kind of a, maybe it's a small habitat, a microhabitat, it might provide pollinators. It might provide some water filtration. It's, it's more than likely it's probably in a low or it's maybe along a stream. Um, that could, I mean, if I could not have to do all that work, and in my own opinion, and it raises the bottom line, so I ultimately make more dollars by doing less, I think that's good. And and, and, and today we have a we have a huge amount of any stocks and grain uh, outside of the current the the weather situation that's more broad than we've probably ever seen in this country at one time. Usually, this uh, drought affects a small area or, or too much rain, small area. And we're talking from Minnesota to southern uh, Indiana and Illinois, yeah, where they where the market really pay attention to <laughs> what's going on with corn. They, they kind of ignore us up here in Minnesota if we have a disaster. Kind of, <laughs> because we don't produce as many bushels as they do. But um, yeah, I think that can be a win. And that's when we first heard about it, and uh, that's how I kind of met uh, Tanner. And uh, that was the gist of our conversations. Like, oh, yeah, profitability strikes a chord. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it is, you know, with the voluntary nature, there's a lot of amazing private land conservation already happening. What this does is it kind of jumps into the 21st century, I guess, and brings conservation and technology together, uh, which traditionally hasn't necessarily happened yep. um, and trying to find those win-win scenarios right so you know if it works for Zach and it's something he he wants to implement it's going to raise his profitability I mean it's, it's just good for his business yeah you talk a lot about that on field work on your yeah. podcast Zach right. what's your reaction to the our precision ag philosophy well I got I mean I have a lot of different thoughts on it I'm not exactly sure where to start, but but number one, I'll say that when it comes to precision egg in general, not not your product, sure. but precision egg in general, I cannot tell you how much precision egg and how how many programs I have coming at me all the time from different companies that are developing. You're talking software, software in general. <clears throat> mm-hmm. This this technical software where you're supposed to get down and basically micromanage every square foot of your property, which all sounds awesome in theory, mm-hmm. y- you know, but then. It sounds good in January, February, March, until it comes to boots on the ground. What do you have for time, labor, and machinery? And weather. And What's weather, because the weather's going to throw a wrench into it. Mm-hmm. What we're always trying to fight is is doing something perfectly versus doing something realistically. So mm-hmm. for me, we've got the software and the stuff that we use that works really well for us, that it has been proven to us, that we say, this is what we use, this is what we've got time for. Um, I've seen a lot of programs come out and, and fly their drone and come back with the data and say, look at here, look at, look at this data that this drone just went and got you. How valuable is this to you? Fly, well, look your, at fly your drone. Yeah, but fly but, your drone. But you That's new. I mean, fly your drone. Who flies? It's, yeah. it's new <laughs> and it sounds, it sounds great. They say, well, we can do population counts. We can look for disease. We can find the spots in your field that are bad. And they fly this 10, 20, $30,000 drone. And then they email you the results, and they say, look it, you've got a bad spot in the back of the field. And I look at it and go, well, yeah, that spot's there every year. It's too wet. It yeah. needs drain tile. I know that that's there. You know, I know that that spot is there. I didn't need you to come out with a drone and come up with the software to tell me that. <laughs> I knew it was going to be a problem before I ever planted it. Mm-hmm. So I know that that's there. And, and the problem I have is show me where this software gives me a return on the investment. Because yep. if it doesn't, I flat out do not have the time to waste on it. I mean, show me where the technicalities of this software can be put into actual use because we are busy and we're always trying to do the best we can, but we can't micromanage every square foot of, no, of the ground. Totally you know, impossible. 
And yet you have made the decision to enroll in certain conservation programs. Yep. So how did you get to, from you're busy, you know, trying to pull off a yield, like, you know what, that wet spot, that should be in CRP. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, as a farmer, I mean, we have 144 years worth of crop history on our farm. Right. I know which areas don't produce that well. Um, and, I, and most of the time I kind of have a pretty good idea of what they need to produce better. Um, it, but it's a man, uh, uh, it's a, you need the time and the money to put into it to make that happen. So we're always trying to, we're always working towards better, right? We were out looking at, uh, some of our CRP ground earlier. Um, we put that in a 15 year CRP, um, easement, and that was about, uh, it's close to 35 acres of ground that, that we farmed for a long time. That's really good soil, but it's always too wet. It's a lot of corners. It's a lot of what we call end rows or headlands. So you don't get as much of a crop off of that. I mean, it's just generally, it's an inefficient acreage to farm. So and it, then you got to find a, a program or you have, you have to find something that's going to kind of reimburse you at least to a certain level. Right. Because we're still paying taxes on yep. that. It's still land that we could farm and exactly. try to make a little money off of. Yep. But is it the right thing to do? Well, we decided at the time it made more sense to put it in CRP, get that payment and not have to worry about those acres. And, and in, in turn... Now there's habitat there, right? And I've yep. shot a lot of pheasants out there. There's <laughs> yeah. a lot of That's pheasants good. out there making yeah. noise every day. So. And it's, it's important to know when you buy a piece of property or rent a piece of property, those acreages are there, and you're paying the same dollars for them. Yep. So the bank wants its interest and mm -hmm. its payment, and so now it has to make sense. It's a management decision. And the county and the township and the school, Absolutely. they want their money off of it every yep. single year, right? Yep. So you got to mm -hmm. make it cash flow as a, as a whole. Everything has to be looked at in this you know, yeah, you want, you can try to micromanage every square foot, but ultimately, what's the bottom bottom dollar? What's Correct. the bottom line say? Because I, I want to have my farm here 10, 20, 30, 50 mm -hmm. years down the road. Pass it down to your kids. Right. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, again, I relate back to field work, your podcast. Yep. Sorry, I keep bringing that up, uh, no, but I just no. listened to, like, all of them. <laughs> 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 but you and Mitchell, um, who you co-host the show with, you, you, you talked about – Mitchell was talking about on uh, one of the recent episodes how cover crops, you know, maybe in short term – um, didn't provide the benefits until like three years down the road. Right. And then, boy, the soil produced higher yields. And, yep. you know, it was maybe a long a long-term investment that has paid off, right? Right. And you guys talk a lot about things related to soil, which is obvious. That's your bread and butter. You also right. talk a lot about water quality. My question, and it makes, you know, it's of keen interest to our listenership is, how often, as a farmer, do you guys think about habitat in the recipe for how you approach your farm? Uh, you know, <clears throat> I, I, pr I think about it a fair amount uh, just because I know that it's an issue that everybody's concerned about. Mm -hmm. um, I hunt pheasants in the fall, not as often as I used to, not as often as I want to. I've done a lot of duck hunting in the past. Um, I, I try to get the muzzleloader out and, and go deer hunting every year when I can. Um, I mean... I want to have habitat around, um, but how, how do we implement that into into what we do is the difficult thing. I mean, when I hear, what's your new nickname? The embodiment. The embodiment. When I hear, <laughs> when I hear <laughs> not to be confused with our former yeah. governor, the body. The embodiment yeah, formerly known. Not the known. body. I, I don't have the muscles for it. <laughs> the, the, the embodiment. The embodiment, right. Formerly known as JP. Also formerly known as. Yeah. When I hear you talk about taking a beautiful 160-acre quarter yeah, and turning right? that over into habitat. I mean, 
I'd like to see the numbers on that and, and what you did there because I, I, I can't imagine looking at that as an option for me myself. I just Correct. don't. The only yeah. reason I want that land is to, to put that into my operation and make that something that cash flows. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, and that was a decision really my dad made. And I think really where the impetus of well, a couple of things, we have that hunter culture in our family. And it was, if we, at that time, people were actually kind of coming out and buying river bottom land, if or even people lived in the area to have a place to to hunt because it was farmed fence line to fence line, tree row to tree row, right? right? And uh, and my dad had you know, uh, three sons, and we all started families, and so his grandchildren. And I think he wanted to actually leave something behind, and it made sense uh, from a tax point of view. It was a highly taxed piece of ground, and it wasn't overly productive, and um, and it was part of his estate planning it was a way to have cash if you will through the crep payments mm -hmm. that were off farm and he uh, he actually used that cash he put it into uh, uh, a, a money management vehicle and actually all of our all of the grandchildren got a little funds for college <laughs> through that crep payment so mm. it was a personal decision so it's not for everyone and it was a quarter we were fortunate enough after farming for six generations, we had, you know, roughly 3,000 acres, and it was a piece. You say, well, we could take that out of the puzzle, and that's that's going to be okay. See, and that would be that would be 15% of our acres that we own. Yeah. I mean, yeah. between both that and I, I mean, that's a big chunk it's of property. You usually only see that until, like, you're in a retiring position, and then you're right. trying to think about a legacy situation. Is but. that piece still in that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it'll be forever. That's I, literally my, my brother. I, my brother I farm with isn't much of a hunter, but the brother who is – corporate banker byron uh, he and i are very close and uh we kind of have a lot of joy in getting to being he gets to bring some people out from the, from the city from the metro area minneapolis st paul area and, and show them this habitat and and when everybody's saying there's no birds out there in western minnesota we limit out yeah so it sounds like you're enrolled in what was crep one mm -hmm. which was all permanently yep. permanent easement. 99 years or whatever that's mm -hmm. a permanent easement there mm -hmm. that's correct and there's a lot of crep it's funny um, there's quite a few properties in crap in that area, uh, you know, and uh, those some folks are trying to sell them off now. And mm -hmm. there was a heyday where you could buy some crap that had some payments left over. It made sense for non-farmers to own. And now some of the non-farmers have these and the payments are over and they're paying taxes. Like, and they, they're they highly overthought as to what those, those values on those lands are today. Hmm. You know, you know so... Beyond CRP, what are some of the other programs that, uh, you know, EQIP, WIP, uh, Wetlands? Uh, CSP. Yeah, a any other um, conservation programs, it, maybe at the federal level or maybe some state-driven programs like RIM that uh, you guys put on your ground? Well, we're involved in CSP, which is a conservation stewardship program. Um, we don't have specific – well, I mean, I guess – so we've worked in some, some buffers with that. Um, so you could consider some of that mm -hmm. habitat, as, as yep. JP had talked. Yep. But uh, beyond that, you know, I, we were out at, at our farm an hour ago, and I showed you our, our deep bander, we call it, where we're variable rating um, our fertilizers about six inches below the soil. So we're getting that fertilizer away from wind and water erosion and getting it under the soil where it binds with the soil molecules right away. Um, that is part of CRP. We're doing things like the Haney testing. Um, and special nozzles on our sprayer to make sure that um, we're, we're doing the things that they want us to do Correct. to be yep. better stewards, right? And that, that's a common theme, you know, that, that I hear in what you talk about both in YouTube 
and in the podcast and the farmers you're talking with, it, like that desire to be better stewards. I mean, that, you know, I, I equate it to hunters. There are slob hunters and poachers out there. No. That, really? That, uh, <coughs> he drives a maroon S10. <laughs> <laughs> if, you're, if, you're, if you're listening. Right, because, uh, you know, we, we talked about this in your, in your driveway. There, it, it's all about individuals. There are slobs from a hunting perspective that don't give a rip about um, private property. They, you know, don't respect the animal, you know, the, the laws of the land. And uh, at the other end of the spectrum, they're, you know, really dyed-in-the-wool conservationists that are completely respectful of, you know, property rights and the habitat that's created out there and the wildlife. And same is true of farmers. Yeah. You know, you, you, know, you have some— The same is true with everyone. Right. General, yeah. right. Yeah. In general. Marketing professionals, <laughs> yep. cooks, right? Like it's, We know it's that individual three of us choices. in this room are decent people, and then we got JP. <laughs> I thought you were going to. <laughs> I, was the, I was the man guy. The embodiment. The embodiment. embodiment. Makes me better. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think when we say stewards, I think we don't take that word lightly. We have a finite amount of time that we spend with this land, and it's really all we are. You could call us land owners. Uh, you know, that's a tricky term. Yeah, we pay the taxes on it. We paid a, a set amount of dollars for it, but we won't be here forever. So we only have a stewardship to the land. Mm -hmm. And then it's going to be somebody else's. Maybe you'll pass it to your children, and they may not be in the farming operation. They may become landowners or landlords. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it'll be up to a renter, and he's actually then, again, a steward. It's his job or her job to take care of that land. Uh, you're not a king. You're the steward. You only have a little bit of time here with this. Yeah. Do you hear that? It feels to me that um, I hear more talk of that within the farm community. Like, hey, you know, we understand. We're, you know, we're making decisions about water quality because, you know what, we always have been. <laughs> yeah, we're just, yeah. you know, there's just a spotlight put on that decision-making process now. Is that accurate? I think so. And and I think, obviously, as with anything else in life, any other industry, we learn more as we go. Sure. Right? So, we're, I mean, we've been throwing in drain tile now for 100 years. Yeah. But we learn more as we go how the science behind that works and how to do it correctly and yep. how to not do it correctly, right? Correct. Whereas 100 years ago when we started, hey, we're going to drain this spot and get yep. some crop here. There's a lot of work behind that. Oh, they dug it in backwards I by I hand. I think about it. There's yeah. a lot of work in it now. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I just can't imagine laying that by hand and dynamite the way they did, you know. Yeah. But but we are always learning about the science behind how to make sure that the water leaving our fields is healthier water. And like JP said, we don't want to put – we don't. there's no reason for me to put more fertilizer than what I need in my soil or more inputs or use more chemicals or, or get rid of – you know, too much water. At some point, y y you need that water, obviously, mm -hmm. to grow the crop. I mean, we're always trying to do the best we can, and and Mother Nature's obviously the biggest, uh, the biggest needle mover there, right? So we right. can we can do everything to plan for a 200 bushel crop, and when Mother Nature comes in and says, "No, I'm going to give you twice or three times the yeah. the amount of rainfalls you're supposed to get," everything's up in the air. Mm -hmm. How do you control it. what you're doing with your nitrogen there? You know, I mean, so much of it is just beyond our control that we really. Yeah. Mother Nature is a cruel mistress. It is. Yeah. You focus <laughs> as much as you can on the things that you can control. And unfortunately, that at times we're, we're reactionary because we can yeah. only control it to a point. Yeah. In the last farm bill, federal farm bill, 
um, the Conservation Reserve Program went from a 24 million acre cap up to 27 million acres. So we got 3 million extra acres. And if you relate that back to the last CRP general sign-up, uh, which was the end of 2015 into 2016, that was the, the lowest acceptance rate in the history of CRP was the last general sign-up. There was so much farmer demand for CRP, and obviously hunters love CRP. You know, so my question is, today, we, you know, we haven't had a general sign-up now in three-plus years. When we do have a general sign-up, which is likely to be the end of 2019, yep. um, do you anticipate farmer rancher demand to be as high as it was last time it was around? My perspective is, hey, the econ the farm economy is a lot more challenged than it was back in yep, 2015, yep. 2016. You said it all right there. The yeah, so, so, so it's going to be. I, I think the demand will be there. Yeah. I kind of do because they're looking for another vehicle. So there's partly economy, but the other part of that, I relate back to the conversation we just left, which is about farmers looking for opportunities to be, quote, unquote, sustainable, thinking yeah. about water quality, soil, maybe a little bit of habitat, and um, making some decisions where all of a sudden, hey, we got 3 million acres of CRP. I've got an option again. Yeah, I think you'll fill those acres. I mean, like yeah. JP said, th what an acre produces now versus what it did in 2012, 2013, as far as, as the gross value, the gross dollars coming in there, it doesn't cash flow the same. I mean, we are in an, just a completely different environment now. So the everything has to be looked at differently because the math is different. Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, high commodity prices that were there, uh, certainly enjoyable to farm during those mm -hmm. times. I'm glad to be able to say I did it. Yeah. Um, but... It, 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 it not all like-minded there are many many uh, farmers that are thinking yeah water quality they're aware of the political scene now that, uh, that we're a very small cross-section of the population we're what two two percent of the united states population are now mm -hmm. farmers and landowners uh, we're being driven by the public and they're demanding more and we are going to have to listen yeah you bring up that two percent of the population so this is uh my cliff clavin fact of that <laughs> episode <coughs> hashtag uh asking for somebody what, what's your hashtag asking, asking for, for a, a friend, friend. Yeah. yeah um so it, it, when when you say two percent of the population of farmers it, depending on the survey year you use from pheasants forever uh, 12 to 20 percent of our membership are farmers. Yeah. You know, and he, especially out in the western part of the state. You're, you're, again, the embodiment of that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah so it's, 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 it can be tricky to so, be. So why pheasants forever? You know, because I absolutely love pheasants and I love to hunt in the outdoor and I felt like pheasants forever actually, in, really, in, in your embodiment of yourself. Is you're not really trying to be against the farmer. Now, not every farmer picks up and listens to this podcast is going to agree with that. They're going to have their own situation. But it, you've lobbied for these CRP programs along with the farm community, understanding that we have to work with landowners. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the way that you manage your, your funds, uh, where it's, you know, we release things local, we spend it back local. People see the result of that work. And that's really, for me, why pheasants are like, they're not trying to work against me and I don't feel like you're trying to demonize the farmer and mm -hmm. nobody wants to be demonized mm -hmm. so it's an organization that's really a, a lot of fun to work with uh, and 
there's benefits. And certainly we have some uh, times when we're at odds. So uh, the biggest thing about conservation isn't about buying uh, an existing crap that's, that's for sale because it doesn't add to the puzzle. That's just buying access. And Pheasants Forever's motto is we're trying to add. So you end up in a situation possibly in, let's say, a land auction. And uh, now Pheasants Forever is in a room full of farmers. That gets a little tight when you're the local farmer and you're on the Pheasants Forever committee and they're starting to get some really harsh looks like, why are you bidding against us? We Because their mind is, they, they maybe understand that that, conservation would be good but that's also a piece of property and they may have a they may have a situation a son or a daughter is coming back and they need to have more land uh, so it's a it could be like playing politics and sometimes you have to kind of know into like hmm, maybe we should stay out of that and work harder at developing a relationship with an individual that may be coming out of farming and mm-hmm. approaching them and saying let's do it this way because nobody and well they can be i guess not i can say nobody but nobody should be really mad if a Someone approaches you as a Pheasants Forever committee and said, I'm getting out of farming or I'm getting older and I, I want to see this become not farming anymore, right. some conservation program that works for me and my family and for my children or, or, my, or my or maybe a wife that's left behind. or yeah. Kinda There's a landowner to, and they want to make a decision for yeah. a, a legacy decision. And I feel like Pheasants Forever has always had the tools to do that. And for the most part, other side of some – from time to time, some tenuous, uh, I think, relationship between a conservation group, which Pheasants Forever is, and a farmer who is a commercially thinking farmer, I think for the most part you're, you're pretty well received within the farming community. I mean, I've traveled most across this country to hunting one species or another. And there's fantastic programs that happen, like Kansas. Is, I love hunting Kansas. I love that walk-in program. Mm-hmm. It's super successful. And when I was in D.C., I was with some of the gentlemen from Kansas, and I was like, wow. And it that makes sense in my mind uh, and I would like to see you know that maybe I'm not opening up my my uh, personal private property into a walk-in access but I know a lot of farmers that just simply don't hunt and that might be a vehicle to like okay we've got a precision egg program we make you profitability and now we can also maybe introduce a walk-in and because that's being paid for by the hunter and gives you access and I think that's a win I guess that gets probably for me why why pheasants forever just seemed to make more sense and easier to work with. Hmm. You know, Bob, your comment on the, was it 12 to 20 percent? Yeah, of depending membership? on the stat. Yep. yep. You know, I think one of the things is just looking at it from a hunter's pers- perspective, but then also just a rural Minnesota perspective. For me, it's about sharing gravel roads, right? Right. We're sharing gravel roads. Uh, a lot of a lot of farmers also like to pull the trigger. Zach, you mentioned it as well. Um, and it just kind of comes back to our our traditions and, and rural lifestyle. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah I'm unfortunately, like uh, JP was saying, you know, sometimes you get that for lack of a better term, you get that competition when you're looking at a piece of land. And, and I guess uh, the way the farmer looks at it or the way I look at it and, and correct me if I'm wrong, if this isn't exactly how it works, but a lot of times you get that grant money in that came from everybody's tax dollars. Um, a lot of it coming from the, the clean water legacy. Correct. Mm-hmm. That'll come in and come in and, and be competition to buy local land from from my area of land that, you know, all of me and my neighbors have had our eyes on for years. We've got the opportunity, and now now we've got another form of competition coming in from tax dollars to a nonprofit that then eventually 
ends up in the in the state or the federal hands, and then it, and then it gets put on the our tax base again because that's land that not only did we lose the opportunity for for somebody to farm but now it's off the tax base you know or it gets the pilt payment yeah which is which is paid by everybody again right and and so that's that's one way that it it can be difficult to look at you know and if you've got a if you're in a township where you you have an awful lot of state or federal lands already at some point you look at that and you get frustrated and you say how much how much land do they need to grab from us when we're trying to make a living out here? When you drive down, you take your six miles in either direction through your township, and and a third of what you see is 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 hunting habitat, y- you know. And yeah, that general procession does also exist. Uh, Pheasants Forever. Let's well, we're we're on the Pheasants Forever podcast, so we'll just refer to that as the only conservation group that we're going to talk about sure. today. But right, uh, they buy a piece of property in the state of Minnesota, eventually becomes. DNR property, and there is that perception of saying, well, the DNR's got it, and they don't take care of nothing, right? Because they don't have enough time. Or sure. That's, that's coming There's no so food plots on DNR land in not, my area. It's not unheard of to hear in the coffee shop. Right. You know, those guys right. bought that piece of quarter over there that was Bob's, and all the DNR owns it, and it's going to hell. So, and yeah. then we were talking earlier, Zach, too, on, you know, just you're talking about competition, right? Yeah. Competition is fierce in farming and, right and now. And I hate to use that word because y- you hate to look at it saying, well, I'm in competition with pheasants forever or competition with the neighbor you know you hate to use that word but when it comes down to it you are and we all know it yeah, hmm. yeah. You, you know where, where i get where i come back to is if the landowner is interested in you know selling it to an organization like ours to leave it as a legacy and oh yeah and many, absolutely 100 so percent. taking the decision out of the landowner's hands you know i, I think that's wrong Right? Yeah. I mean, it right. should be up right. to them. And then there's also pieces of property that, you know, ultimately don't make good farm ground. True. And yes. as you're driving around, you know, you, like a third of the land, it may, you say, is in public wildlife areas. Well, there's no county that has a third well, of the sure. land, but uh, it might be just kind of the perception that there's enough out there. Yeah. And well, I know the, the specific township where I used to live in, um, I want to say it was sev- about 17% of the tillable land that was now in, in, in under state or federal programs there. And, and the, the information's there, you know, if you really want to look it up. Mm-hmm. But, and, and when I look at that too, the reason for that was because that township has a lot of rolling hills, mm-hmm. had a lot of, I guess I would call it like pasture style ground. It was land that wasn't, great farm right. ground there anyway. might be some wetlands in there yeah. and yep. so we had a, a quarter and a half of land just down the road from our house that had been farmed for i don't know 150 years and it was in it was probably in at least 10 pieces yeah not a great piece of land to farm so when it came for sale and i heard that um pheasants was actually interested in it i mean to me it was a no-brainer right you know give it to those guys turn it over into into habitat because it's half habitat anyway the way it yep. sits right yep. so let them do what they want with it put some native grasses on it and i mean to me, it made that that piece made sense for sure. Yeah, uh, you know, one other just clarifier from a pilt payment perspective, I think it's every county except for two in the state of Minnesota, pilt payments are actually higher in that county than they, than that um, privately owned farm ground. And it's See, up to the county to then provide funds down to the township level. Down to the township, yeah. yeah. And See, the only exception is like way up in the northwest, like Kuchiching, um, where that doesn't hold true yeah. sure. or maybe you just explain that because uh, there's a lot of folks that don't understand that tax perspective of what happens to a piece of property once it becomes 
conserved. So well, I know in, in the township where I was on the township board, that pilt payment didn't come close to matching. But really? that may be a situation where or it we may were not, not getting it flown through from the county. You know, I mean. Yep. Who knows what what kind of games are played on paper, right? You know, behind the other thing that I always think about when we talk about this conversation is having some of those public areas in communities. It, it pulls city it's right <laughs> to to Bob. those towns. Uh, yeah, I didn't and we'll, say it. We'll explain city it's in a minute, <laughs> but you know it does put hunters, um, bird watchers into those coffee shops, gas stations. You know, bring yeah. in new funds because otherwise, like honestly, you know, I I spent a ton of time on that Pope Stearns County line come October, November, and I'm eating all the cafes in West Union and Padua and buying gas and staying in hotels and in Sox Center. And if you go into, like, that Sox Center American from October to November, it's dog kennels and blaze orange, and they're spending money at, you know, Tutti Fruities down the road. And and, um, I think that from a local perspective – you got to take that into consideration too because sure. you know it's beautiful out here but i'm not coming out like six times a year in october and november spending cash uh if i don't have places to go and i you know i'm a public land hunter that yeah. relies on some of those places i think that's a part of your part of your marketing that you probably just don't sell enough yeah. where we don't understand maybe it's our culture in minnesota like they like they do in south dakota where it's embraced that's Pheasant hunting's a big, major economic booster there. You're right. They do an awesome job in South Dakota. And they advertise it, market to it. Right. You go down Main Street, it's welcome hunters. And, like, the locals can see the infusion of dollars into the local areas. And you get a sense of that in Marshall. Yeah. Right? But you don't see it unless you start looking for it a little bit more in places like Glenwood and in Sox. It's not quite as embraced. I know it's a big part in the Marshall area with Hunt Southwest Minnesota, for instance. I mean, it is an economic driver. Yeah. Um, That's why we have so many hotels, and they're all dog friendly. (laughs) But there's no birds there. There's no birds in that area. (laughs) Pro tip while hunting, your dog can be your therapy dog, even though you're hunting with it. That will get him into most hotels. Crucify me if I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So so I do want to transition... Uh, we touched on it, the guy in the maroon Chevy S10. Uh, we've got two farmers, two landowners, and we've got an audience of bird hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us cityites, me included, and a cityite by definition is somebody that lives in the city uh, Monday through Friday, gets off of work on Friday and drives west, drives south, drives to your home areas. And, um, uh, you know, with the goal of chasing some birds. And, you know, we do it on WPAs, waterfall production areas, WMAs, wildlife management areas, um, and then also try to knock on some doors here and there. And I categorize myself as a city-it, <laughs> but I, I hope I'm not. So uh, we have the city uh, and the embodiment. Yeah, the no, embodiment. Hey. <laughs> and the millennial farmer and Tanner. Yeah. And Tanner. <laughs> and don't forget yeah. about yourselves, guys. You're important, too. The degenerate. Uh, that, uh, that's <laughs> what we're going <laughs> But, th- you know, there is a ton of folks listening that want to do the right thing. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, from a landowner's perspective, um, 
what not to do and how to do, um, you know, if they, if, let's start with um, somebody wants to ask permission. Um, how would you prefer that somebody ask permission to hunt a piece of your, your crap ground? Because I knock on doors and have to face those yeses and noes too when I'm out of state. So uh, my approach really is plan ahead a little bit. Uh, you know, if, it's, if you have an opportunity to come out the week before you're going to hunt, and you are using Hunt on X. Are we all using it now? I use it extensively. It gives you an opportunity to see who the landowners are, but they may be absentee owners, so you may have to knock on the door. I'd say, first and foremost, just remember to be humble. Drive up slowly. Be cognitive of what meal times are and, and farm rhythms really are. We're probably up quite early, but we're probably really not ready to take anybody stranger in until maybe 9 o'clock in the morning. And don't come at lunch. It's maybe It might be a chance for us to have a little family time. Yeah. And, and, and if you're going to come after supper, you know, maybe 7, 8 o'clock at night. Uh, but I prefer a knock on the door than a phone call. Uh, and then just... Uh, you know, I think it's just all you can really do is be humble, offer a hand, make eye contact, and say, you know, this piece of property, wondering if it's yours, if it is that, and that's the owner, the landowner. Just uh, tell me, we, you know, we're thinking about coming back next week. Uh, any opportunity that we could we could hunt that, hmm. and you'll, you'll you're, you know, it's like uh, cold calls if you're a marketer. You're going to get some yeses and you get some noes. Hopefully the landowners are respectful of the fact that you actually took time to uh, come to their doorstep, knock on their door, f- talk to them face-to-face, offer a friendly handshake, and tell them what you're about and what you're doing. And then when you're doing it, if you get permission, take care of it. Appreciate mm-hmm. it. Uh, and don't assume that th- you that's now your lifelong permission. That's a great point. Yeah, and don't it's assume it. Don't, don't yeah. assume it's for tomorrow either. Maybe you're out Saturday, and yeah, uh, you can do that over time if you develop with a landowner. He may say, "Hey, you don't have to tell me every time. You, you're good for the year, or you're good for whatever." And I think uh, you know, I, I if you can get to know a person, somebody likes really good beer, or maybe like a nice bottle of brandy. It's okay to give a gift. It's it's maybe better than say having somebody tell you, yeah, hey, you can go out there and hunt that, and there's six guys, and it's 100 bucks a barrel. That's what you get in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. I think there's still a lot of landowners in Minnesota to be happy to let you do that, and as long as you're appreciative of it, maybe, maybe you get an address. Maybe you get a phone call. Maybe you drop them a thank you note, or maybe it's an elderly landowner, and he remembers, or he and she remember when oh, my missus used to make a fine meal of pheasant. We haven't had one in a while. You could give up a couple Bird. of those birds. Mm-hmm. You might even offer to have them all cleaned up and ready to go in the fry pan. Mm. And they might say yes or no. I, I guess that I think is my approach. I think it's it's what somewhat works for, for me when I'm out of state if I'm trying to find private property to hunt on. Farmers are busy in the fall. Yeah, yeah that, in the that's fall. one thing I was going to say is one of my biggest pet peeves is do not make me stop the combine to see if you can hunt. D- don't do that. Wait for a guy to come in the truck. Wait until you see me shut the combine down. Don't make me stop that thing when it's running because that thing's expensive when it's going. Hmm. What if you, you know, relay it? And, and relay it, hop on the, the steps and climb up in there. You can do that, but I'm not stopping for you because <laughs> I don't stop to take a leak half the time because then the grain cart's yeah. waiting for me, then the truck guys are waiting. I don't think we want you to do the leap either. Uh, <laughs> uh, you miss, that combine's going to really do a number on your human body. Yeah. <laughs> my, my dad always tells me about how grandpa would never stop the combine. If you had to talk to him, or you had to bring him lunch, you had to jump on it while he was You had to do the ladder jump? Oh, boy. Yep. Yep, you did the ladder jump every time. And when you're trying to carry a sandwich and do a ladder jump, it's difficult. 
Yeah. That's a great point. What about yeah. etiquette on, <clears throat> you know, Tanner and I drive up, and uh, I ask permission. There's four other trucks down the road, right? That's not cool. No. Right. Yeah. What, what's the right number of people that you're going to knock on the door and you guys would feel comfortable letting on your property? Yeah, you know, I've, I, I've got my three or four kind of buddies or guys I've let on there forever. Yeah. And beyond that, I mean, that's enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not just going to let everybody out there. I got yeah. the guys that I know are respectful, that I know how they hunt. I've probably hunted with most of them. I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I guess I'm, that's who I've got. I'm a hard sell because I'll knock on a private door trying to get it, but I probably don't give much on mine because I I have a You're, brother. I have a brother, and I'm pressuring it as well, and I probably pressure a good part of the state property around there, but late. I I don't know if that's be being respectful or if it's just being smart. So the state property or the uh, – if you will, public property that's mm-hmm. in my area. Early in the season, probably gets hunted pretty heavily. And then when the weather gets a little inclement, well, I like to hunt when there's f- f- ice on them sloughs, mm-hmm. and I can go right into the tall rhubarb and the cabbage. I find birds, and I'm all by myself during the middle of the week. So I, I tend to s- focus on, on public grounds later in the season. Um, so, But I, I to Sack's point, yeah, I think it's, 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 it's not an easy task, but I think it's still – I think you'll still feel better at the end of the day knocking on the door and taking right. a no than if find a guy, it's, uh, you're out on his property, and he's not going to have nice things to say to you. Right. Right. What's the worst thing that's – most egregious thing that's happened on your property that's just fired you up? I think it's when – if you got legs. There's, a, there's obviously a place where there's a field entry. Park there and walk. You know, don't be driving all over on the property, and, and obviously don't throw the bush lattes out in there for me to pick mm-hmm. up because they weren't there. Yeah. I think be clean. I, it, we all probably should be more responsible, and I'm guilty of this, is, is grabbing our shot shells, and I don't do enough of it and carry them out of the field. That doesn't bother me, but, you know, I don't need your fast food wrappers or your garbage or, or whatever. Right. Uh, you know, I think that's generally just be respectful sure. of what you have an opportunity to do there. Yeah. I, like for me, parking is a big one. Yeah. Um, don't park in front of our three semis that are waiting to get loaded and pull out of the field and then make me stop the combine, and now that truck's full and he's got to get out, and you're mm-hmm. in his way and you're over-talking to me or, or parking on the side of the road but not really off the road. Mm. And we can't All tires get through. are still on the gravel. All tires still on the gravel, yeah. and we can't get through with the equipment. And I realize it's everybody's road. I'm not saying mm-hmm. I own the road, but – um, just be respectful I, of the yeah, next yeah. person. Yeah. I came across a truck last year that w- it was literally parked on the gravel road next to uh, the little parking lot in a corner of the wildlife area that he had. And luckily the keys were in it. I got out because I couldn't get by. I got out, jumped in his truck, and I drove it into that parking lot and, and drove by and left. You know, no, I didn't damage anything. wasn't interested in, in damaging any property, but... Yeah, it was irritating that I had to do that, you know, yeah. and I because I didn't see him, I couldn't see anybody walking around. Otherwise, yeah. I'd have asked him to move it. But and honestly, this follows a really joyful time for a farmer, but it is also an extremely stressful time, mm-hmm. and it can matter about weather. And we're probably a little bit ornery anyway. Hmm. We're not. Our patients have probably drawn pretty thin. We've probably been depending, you know, probably working eighteen-hour days without any breaks and eating a lot of sandwiches, and it gets old. 
you know. So be patient with us. We'll do our best to be patient with you. There was a there's usually always a meme that goes around during harvest. We all share it halfway <laughs> through. And it's, a, it's an old Jack Nicholson. His hair's just laying off to one side. He's got, his eyes up. Yeah. He's got that big pretend smile. It says, harvest is going great. Why are you asking? You know, like a, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, exactly. Yep. You know, we, we talked a little bit. I mean, you guys are both farmers. You're both hunters. Um, you know, hunting and conservation as a huge problem right now with the loss of hunters, right? Hunt, yeah. Licensed buyers have really funded state agencies, state DNRs, um, habitat conservation. And, you know, we're, we have a precipitous drop in hunters across the country. And you can look at it and say, well, a lot of it is farm flight, rural flight, people move into the city. Um, but even guys like you are becoming more of an anomaly. You know, hunters. Hunter or, and I'm farmer. Sorry, farmers who hunt. Are you, is that true from your circle? Do you see um, Do you see a decline in hunters? Is there an opportunity for organizations like us to re-engage farmers in bird hunting? Hmm. You know, in my circle, there's a fair number of us. Actually, most of my hunting partners are farmers okay. within my age group. We'll say so, my peers. Sure. Uh, we had a day. We we actually skipped South Dakota this year. God, there's a lot of birds out here, and we got together after we finally uh, got done farming. And I think it was a beautiful day in December. We started at nine o'clock, and at two o'clock we had the bro picture up on the Facebook, and we were being accused of hunting on a uh, on a game farm. And I was like, man, these are wild birds. We took three apiece. They're great shots. They're all farmers, and they all had uh, private land to hunt hmm. on. But I, but I I think in general you're correct. I think there's a lot less of uh, hunter farmers, hmm. uh, or not a lot less, but there's getting to be less and less of that. I think or they don't embrace that lifestyle. The millennial farmer. What do you think uh, of your age group? I, you know, I didn't actually realize that. I didn't realize that hunter numbers had dropped off so much. Yeah. Um, I had no idea. I guess my friends all still hunt. Good. I hunt a lot less than I used to, and and but that comes from you know we got four kids in the house now, and I've taken on a lot more of the farm and. Adulting is tough. <laughs> yeah, and farming, so not farming, farming is it? <laughs> farming always, is not no. the most conducive thing to being a, a, a hunting. It's right. at the wrong time it's all at the, the wrong time. time. Yep. So, <laughs> yep. that's why I go muzzle loading instead of shotgun hunting uh, for deer. Yeah, and I archery hunt because I could take care of the last part of the season, but not yep. so much of the early part of the season. But um, you guys are, and I'm looking at all three of you now. We'll we'll wrap up with a couple final questions and think we about... We could go all Rogan. We can yeah, do this we for three yeah. hours. <laughs> four hours. Uh, you've got another podcast to do later, you, don't you? Yeah, I'll run over there and then I could be back before <laughs> you guys... We could do the wrap-up wrap up then. Up, yeah. That'd be perfect. Um, you're out on the uh, out in the fields, on the gravel roads more than most of our listeners. What do you... Wh- you know, and, and like we said earlier, it's been extremely wet from a farming perspective, getting... Uh, you know, we, getting crops in the ground, you know, there's a massive discussion about prevent plant out there, cover crops. Um, but specifically for our listenership, what are you seeing for bird numbers when you're out dra- driving around? Are you seeing broods of pheasants um, in your travels? I'm seeing less than I was five years ago. Hmm. I think last winter was pretty tough on them. It was pretty cold. We did have a lot of snow. That helps a lot, right? 
Uh, depends on when that snow hits. Um, sure. Yeah, and, and snow generally is not great for pheasants, especially it's harder to, to get to food. Harder yep. to get to food. And the snow in Minnesota last year really happened in that March and April time frame, which probably delayed nesting season. And any time you delay nesting season, I'm, you should be talking. You're the biologist, Tanner. I like listening but, to you, Bob. <laughs> yeah. But it tends to uh, it, it tends to push things back, and that's never good for pheasant. Yeah, much. and one, one benefit, I guess, if you want to look at the benefit of the late snow, would be that we had a pretty decent winter up until February, right? So they came into the massive amounts of snow in pretty good shape. Mm-hmm. So that was one benefit of looking at it. But yeah. And yeah. the snow didn't last all winter and didn't get overly deep. I, 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 it, I probably, it was I probably w- different from Zach, but that's just how regional pheasant production can be. Great point. And nothing against Pope County. Uh, I wouldn't label this as my hot t- county to come to, to to hunt pheasants, even though I have a great amount of habitat, really, in this in this county and in, in the glacial area. Yeah. Uh, but from where I was, from where I'm at, Chippewa County, we saw birds pretty much all winter long and saw hens come through, even though that polar vortex hit us and had kind of a rough, cold winter. They, yeah, they they were healthy enough coming into it. They looked healthy. And I think it will actually come down to hatch. And I have seen some broods taking flight. Um, you want to really know who sees the most pheasants? I always say, ask your local linemen. They drive, they drive gravel roads every day, all day long, mm. and they have a pretty good thumb on what's happening with pheasant population. But yeah, it's been so stinking wet too that that's not not that's good not for that helpful. getting in the field planting or spraying. Uh, not good for, for our little feathery friends either. Yeah, that's that's very true. Hopefully, they nested up high uh, because it was were early wet. That was always my prayer. And, you know, and not everybody, you're, we're not biologists, but I understand, I'm not, you are, um, but pheasant nesting is a unique thing. Right. Uh, they lay an egg, and they go away, and they lay an egg, and they do that for 12, 15 days. Uh, they hatch one egg, they're done. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a double hatch. There's, right. That's a misnomer. It's it's a re-nesting, and they'll try that a couple of times, and then it's over. Um, and then we have to deal with, while they're off nest, does it get hot, does it get cold, does it rain? It's it's a tricky animal to get. Uh, they can really make a comeback, you know, but I'm gonna go. I'm still optimistic. Uh, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic well. still because I thought the hens were in great shape, and the early broods that were out were large broods, uh, and even found. I think I have a picture of the nest that was sent to me by one of my trap team coaches, and there was 15. So it might have been a dump. It, mm. it might have been a dump nest, but there was 15 eggs in that mm. nest, and the hen came off of it that he, that he saw. So The two broods that I saw yesterday, uh, both in southwest Minnesota. Really? Lyon County, you say? Uh, no, 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 no. Pope <laughs> County. Sorry. <laughs> not, not southwest Minnesota. Well, it's just hot spotted. It's all by Porter. <laughs> and they range from, you know, one, one brood was probably two to three days old, and the other one was probably a week, week and a half. So... All right, this is a magic wand. As farmers and bird hunters, you get to create something new in the farm bill that's going to create habitat on the ground and help your operation. What would you do? I didn't know that was coming. Zinger. Zinger. I'm waiting for you to answer so I have time to So I'm going to allude a little bit to a podcast that Zach just did not so long ago when he had a representative from Cargill there. And I think it, part of the conversation was really about how do we find dollars because this is a long-term uh, a turnaround, let's say, cover crops, and we change the way we currently farm today. 
is there a is it going to take a government program? And I can tell you, there isn't a farmer out there that wants to have his hands out living on a government program. Nobody wants government welfare. At least, not, I don't. Not in my operation, but it exists. Mm-hmm. It exists for the good of the general public, right? Otherwise, food's super expensive. Go to Europe. Check that out. Is there a way to bridge that gap? Give those folks that are wanting to see us farm in a way that has better soil quality, better water quality, for them to realize that we may need to have of some kind of a financial program that allows us to make that transition for that three or four or five year turnover that allows us to come back into better production. Because there is a definite production lull when you start to do some conservation tillage things. What we see here, and that's somewhat, that's regional because it's Minnesota and soil type. The soil type that Zach farms is 100% different than what I farm. Hmm. And what's the distance, miles-wise? 40, 50 miles. Wow. Yeah. That yeah. different. Oh, well, absolutely. Even, even, even within here, a field. <laughs> well, you go e- either side of where we're sitting right now, you go that way, and it's it's heavy soils, a lot of topsoil, tight yellow clay underneath it. You go that way three miles, and it's irrigators. Mm-hmm. And they're growing potatoes oh. and peas blow and sweet sand. corn on it. Yeah. What we yeah. call blow sand. It picks up and blows, dries out. Yeah. Yep. And I'm heavy. Heavy soils again, like heavy clay loam, a yellow clay base. Yep. Yeah, we call it loon poop, and I I edited the poop part because yep. we have another <laughs> word for it. But loon poop, so we call it when it gets wet. Yeah, I, I mean I I would kind of play off of what JP was saying, where I think long term, if we if we can implement some of the some of the different conservation practices, um, I know it gets hound, hounded on a lot, and people in my area aren't always open to it and in, in, including myself we haven't implemented it on our farm because we're having difficulty trying to figure out how do you do that you know and in my head it makes sense that if you could go with some sort of a no-till or strip till or it, with cover crops mixed in you could make it work for five six years in a row that maybe the, that soil structure would change a little and that eventually you could figure out how to get this operation to function that way but the dollars that it would take and the time that it would take is hard to come by because you're going to need some different machinery. You're going to need to have different practices and do things at a different time. And we're, we're not, you know, I don't have the education to know exactly when the right timing is. And then Mother Nature is going to change it anyway. Um, and, then, and then maybe, number one, maybe it doesn't work. And we bite the bullet for five or six years. And when I say bite the bullet, I'm not talking about, you know, if we try this on uh, 40 acres or 100 acres, even just on that low shortage of acres, I'm not talking about taking a two or three thousand dollar hit. I mean, it could be a hundred thousand dollars. And how many years in a row can right. you take that hit just to say, "Well, I'm trying to be a conservationist." It doesn't feel good. No, that, no. How many yeah. people that aren't farmers could take that? How yeah. many farmers could take that? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't do that. And your bankers better be understanding, right? Right, yeah. right. So yeah. it's just not as simple as saying, "I'm not going to till this year, and we're going to change this." But I think. If we could figure out a system to do that in in a lot of different areas, and I don't know for sure that it would work because I haven't seen it work here ever really in my lifetime, Um, and there's been people who've tried it. I haven't seen it work yet. I'm not saying it wouldn't, but if we could figure that out, I think there'd be obvious benefits to the environment and to pheasants, right, if we we had some of that cover crop rotated in there and stuff, and they're going to like wintering on – on no-till corn stalks a lot better than they are on trying to pick through the tillage. 
when they're looking for feed or or snow to hide in or whatever yeah and yeah how do we grow how do we make pheasants on production agricultural land? yeah and you maybe know, i get had to a that win-win you know kind of scenario of of you're still doing what you have to do to have a business but yet you know we're raising pheasants right right and so i guess ultimately what i'd like to see is is I don't know if it'd be companies. I don't know if it'd be government. I don't know who who would step up and help with this. But there's so much talk about conservation mm-hmm. and different practices. Yet when it comes down to it, it's really difficult to find the help, whether it be financially or otherwise, to do that, to implement that. Has, it's not an easy thing to do. Has the sustainability movement from big companies like General Mills and Land O'Lakes and in in Cargill and um, how's that impacted your operation? Is, has that helped or has that been created more of a challenge out of perspective from the general public? In my personal operation to this point, um, we haven't changed anything based on that. Hmm. However, I think going forward, consumer sentiment is going to drive what the big companies like General Mills are going right. to are, are going to do, right? The consumers are going to tell the companies what they want. The companies are going to follow suit and in turn, that's going to come back on guys like JP and I to say yep. this is this is who we're looking for. This is what we want you to do. And then it'll come down to whether we want to market for that way or not and whether we can implement it or not. Yeah, or if the market somehow changes its vehicle to allow that to happen. Right. We have to inflict some some dollars. I mean, we always hate to come back to the dollars, 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 but, you know, we all want to eat. Well, like uh, you say, no farmer wants pay the bills. a handout. Yeah, and, and we have typically fairly high debt loads and narrow margins, and uh, it, it all has to make sense at the end of the day. And uh, those hits, those big hits are harder and harder to recover from mm-hmm. all the time. Especially, you know. like you said, when you have yeah. to service a high debt load. Yeah. For machinery that's necessary for business. Yeah, you take a half right. million dollar shot in farming, and it's very possible to do in a, in a in a season. It may take you eight to ten years to recover from that. Truly recover from it. Yeah, if you, you know, do. If you ever do. Yep. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for uh, spending. Man, that's a, a low fair note. To, that's, a, that's a low note to quit on. Well, I'm not quitting. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> we got to bring some positivity I, back. I, I am gonna. <laughs> we're gonna end with final thoughts. Oh, great. Okay. Um, final thoughts. And that, that's where you can turn the tide and and be glowingly rosy <laughs> rainbows and Nerf world here. You can be the embodiment. <laughs> the embodiment. Um, but I do, you know, on behalf of Pheasants Forever, sincerely appreciate you guys talking about. You know, farming and hunting coming together. I mean, there's a ton of common ground here. And it doesn't happen without conversations like this. You know, it's not just going to be organic, right? We, right we've right. got to come together. And, and, you know, JP, like the, the embodiment, like you said, um, you know, we, we work in Washington, D.C. and state capitals to find that balance between habitat conservation and what's good for the farmer. Yeah. Um, obviously, we're a nonprofit with a conservation mission, and we have a goal. Yep. You guys are farmers. You have a goal, too, right? Make a profit, put food on the table for the family. There's overlap there, and it's just doing a better job fundamentally finding that overlap. So thank you for spending the time talking through some of yeah, this. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you for voluntary conservation that you're doing. Yeah. Uh, greatly appreciated and and. We wouldn't have the wildlife populations that we have without the uh, uh, habitat on private land. So to any other farmers out there listening as well, sincerely thank you. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank thank you guys. And, you know, the same goes for when you say we wouldn't have the population out there uh, if it wasn't for some of that private land and the practices on that. I mean, same goes to the state and federal land that I hit on earlier. We have to have some of that. Yep. You know, we have to protect some of that. A lot of it comes down to telling stories, too, as far as why a certain piece of land is important, right? Right. Like, for us to tell you as the farmer why this piece of land was, was important for for a complex or for a certain species. Sure. Yep. Tanner, final thoughts. Tanner, final thoughts. <laughs> well, I think it was a great podcast. It hits home with me uh, growing growing up in southwest Minnesota, um, working with farmers all the time. You know, I was telling these guys earlier, my first uh, first job was picking rock just for a lunch. Yeah. I don't think you could do that anymore. Was it a good lunch? <laughs> it was. It was a good lunch. Well, just yeah, a nice diner, middle of nowhere. You uh, know. Yeah. Um, so again, thank you guys for for joining us, and I think getting a perspective uh, from the farmer's view and how we can relate together, how we can work together, how we can find win-win scenarios, win-win situations that that are going to benefit both sides, and and uh, making sure that we're waving at each other as we pass by on the gravel roads. The millennial farmer, Zach Johnson. So if folks the. want to um, find you on YouTube, yep. all they have to do is look for it. Minnesota millennial farmer. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Millennial is a tough word to spell. It is. <laughs> Two L's Are you used minutes. to it yet? I'm used to it. Yeah. Yeah. But it, I had to look it up several <laughs> times. I had to make dang sure when I started that channel, I was spelling that correctly. I give you credit, though, for taking on the millennial title. <sighs> Thank you. I'm, it's I'm 33. I try to stay away from that. That I know. term, but and that's part of the reason I did it was to you know stick up for my generation too because just because we're millennials, I mean it's got that negative connotation with it, right? Yeah. But there's still millennials out there that that like to work hard and take pride in in what we do. Zach and I are people too. That's right. <laughs> Millennial lives matter. Uh, folks want to follow you on Instagram, Twitter. You're you're there as well, right? Yep, I'm. Pretty much everywhere. I don't. I don't touch Snapchat anymore. You can find my account there, but I haven't been on it in months. Um, but yeah, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and and YouTube's really where I'm at. And then the podcast is Fieldwork. Fieldwork podcast. Yep, that's through uh, Minnesota Public Radio. Um, my co-host Mitchell Hora. I mentioned him, and um, we probably got we got several episodes yet to come out this season, and then we're uh, we're already starting on on getting the details ready for season two. So. Any any final thoughts on our conversation? I think it was a good conversation. Hopefully, um, hopefully it, it brought some ideas to some of the listeners. You know, it's it's important, like you say, that that we work together and that we um, we aren't trying to butt heads and and fight over anything, whether it be land or hunting rights or whatever. I mean, you know, as Tanner said earlier, there's a lot of hunters that like to pull the trigger. I love doing it. Don't get to do it as much as I'd I'd like to, but. Uh, most of the hunters I know like to pull the trigger once in a while. And so it, it, it is important that um, we look at it from a, a neutral stance. You know, it doesn't have to be a, a bipartisan right. or it should be a bipartisan situation kind of a thing. Sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the way everything in life should be looked at is there's there's always a middle ground somewhere. Y- you know, you take an extreme from from each side and somewhere in between lies the the truth, I guess. Yeah. 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 And the embodiment, <laughs> Jan. New, new hash, is that a new hashtag? Are you going to start using that? I may have to open up a whole new Instagram account. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm going to Instagram all, you. <laughs> uh, thank you for being a chapter volunteer. 
Uh, we can't thank all of our 4,000 plus chapter volunteers around the country enough, um, putting on banquets, working um, youth mentor hunts, holding habitat projects. Um, sincerely, thank you from well, the entire you. organization. It's been rewarding, really. It, uh, the, the benefit's been far away to any other, uh, anything. It's been fantastic. And I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on your show, doing your podcast. Long-form conversation is a great way for us all to kind of come together and, and to, to learn something. And, in, in a, and it gives us opportunity and time to do that. Uh, it, it's really nice to have you give us farmers the opportunity to s let other people know, hey, we're not villains. We're really into this stuff. Um, and Fez is Forever have been a great organization. You talked, we didn't really wrap up on it, but uh, bringing youth back to, mm. uh, to and, and, and hunters in general, we all need to learn. We need to mentor them, and we do those youth programs. They're fantastic. You've been great supporters of something super close to me as being a trap team coach in Minnesota High School lead trap and the more kids we get involved out there in the shooting sports some of them are going to filter down and hopefully try a little little hunting so um, it's been really great Zach was a perfect I think uh, host uh, or uh, other guest I guess uh, he, he brings his YouTube and his base with him and I think he makes a great connection uh, to those folks that are uh, off the farm and trying to figure out what it is we do Jan Payne, Zach Johnson, Tanner Bruce, thank you very much for being on Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast today. And uh, thanks also to our, our friends at John Deere, the habitat tractor of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And I'm not lying, this is the most beautiful damn John Deere tractor uh, retail outlet in the country. I mean, it's, it's overlooking Lake Minnewaska uh, on this hillside, and it would be a great place to work. I mean, it's just it's a gorgeous setting. So thank you to uh, Midwest Machining uh, Machinery Company here in Glenwood, Minnesota. Thanks, to li thanks for listening um, to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast. I am Bob St. Pierre, and I will see you down the road.